All right, we're going to do part three of the perioperative class. I've got a, a uh, attendance sheet coming around, and also uh, Susan Stabler Haas asked to have this handout for the for the class on the fourth, and she also asked you to go to Blackboard. And there's some more directions, uh, I guess, for what to do with this stuff there. All right, respiratory care. Very important assessment preoperatively. So you're not only just counting, counting respiratory rate, but you want to try to get an idea of how, you got one? How many do we need then, three? It's coming around. Uh, how deep they're, they're breathing, and also the rhythm. Is it regular or, or irregular? The other important thing is to promote lung expansion and so we do things like ask people to do deep breathing exercises, cough and deep breathe. And a big part of that is also going to be pain control because if somebody's in a lot of pain, they're not going to be all that interested in helping you with, their, uh, with your breathing exercise. And again, also help by practicing preoperatively then it's not such a shock to them when you walk in with the incentive spirometer and they're saying, what's that? And you expect me to do what? And these things usually have a little sliding scale on here that lets you uh, determine how much, uh, where their baseline is or, or an ins sometimes these are called incentive spirometers because the idea is you can set a goal for them and that's their incentive to reach that mark. That's where the word incentive comes from in that. Uh, getting people up and moving around is very, very important too. Uh, one of the best things you can do for helping you with breathing is getting into an upright position. Uh, in some surgeries where you have people that can't get up or not allowed to walk, they'll even, they'll, they use uh, circoelectric beds. Have you ever seen those uh, where actually people will be tilted up into a vertical position to at least get their lungs into a position that's, that's uh, more vertical? And, uh, and helps them uh, with tidal volume. Um, looking at what kind of positions you can put people in to help them with breathing, sitting on, even if they're not uh, interested in getting up and moving around, if you can sit by the edge of the bed uh, and just sit up, that, that can help for any, you know, even for a short period of time. Getting people up into a chair, you'll see that a lot of, a lot of medical surgical units will have a, a comfy chair or a reclining type chair and uh, it's important to get people up into that and at least spend a few hours sitting in those chairs. It also helps you change the bed and do that kind of stuff too, but it also is important just to get their lungs into a better, better position. And of course staying well hydrated is important for, because you need to be able to move secretions. Generally, hydration is not an issue postoperatively because people are going to have IV fluids. Uh, one, of the, one of the issues that sometimes come up is getting people to start PO fluid, but when they're on IV fluids, they don't want to drink. 
And so you get this catch-22. I can't take any of the IV out until you start drinking, but you don't want to drink because you got the IV in. Um, so sometimes what we do is slow down the IV and try to get people to start, and then, and then sometimes you can get um, more luck getting people to drink. Uh, some of the respiratory problems, atelectasis, what's that? A collapsed lung, right. Uh, pulmonary embolisms that can, that, that can occur. Uh, hypoxemia, people aren't, aren't getting enough oxygenation. And more longer term would be pneumonia. That would be where somebody would get an infection. But that's, you're not going to see that in your immediate post-op uh, period. Who else needs the handout for Susan Stabler Haas? Rachel, can you hand these out for me? Just hold your hand up and Rachel will pass them out to you. All those people in the back of the room that came in late. Latecomers, hold up your hands. Post-operative cardiovascular concerns, blood pressure, pulse, and also tissue perfusion. So by doing uh, neurovascular assessments, you need more? Oh, there's that many latecomers, eh? Thank you very much. Um, by checking capillary refill gives us a chance, gives you a chance to see how good their peripheral perfusion uh, is. Um, maintaining fluid balance. Remember I talked about people getting all puffy because of the post-op, because of the length of surgery, sometimes people have a lot of fluid, retain, are retaining a lot of fluid, and um, it can you want, so you want to make sure that that fluid is, is draining off. Uh, don't be surprised sometimes if you might see output greater than input because they're actually losing, losing more fluid. Getting people to move their legs and things like that, even if it's just a, a range of motion in the bed, can help get fluids moving and helps and can help them eliminate uh, excess fluid. Uh, hypovolemia again we, is usually not a concern because of the management with blood products, management of IV fluids. Uh, there is a concern with internal hemorrhage, though, because you do you can't always see that. So if you see anything where somebody's abdomen is starting to get stiff or painful, uh, that could be a sign that they're having some kind of internal bleeding. Or if it looks like they're starting to get a bruise on their belly, that's another sign of internal, internal bleeding. And that's something you want to bring to the attention of the physician right away. Sometimes you might see those things even before vital sign changes. Uh, one of the your body is very good at compensating for, for fluid loss, and so you don't always see changes in the vital signs. So make sure that you're looking at those other kinds of signs that can indicate internal bleeding. There's also risks of thrombus, which is, what's that? What's a thrombus? A blood clot, right? Or an embolus which, which uh, can be any kind of clot from either from air or from, from, from or fat. There's also thrombophlebitis where, where the uh, uh, veins get uh, infl uh, inflamed and, can, and circulation can, uh, can be Im impaired. Um, what you're worried about here is anybody who starts showing any kind of confusion, uh, you know, where they seem to be doing okay and now they're starting to get confused, or uh, in pulmonary embolism, they start to seem to have pr trouble breathing or start gasping for air. 
these are particularly can occur after um, any kind of orthopedic surgeries because there's uh, long bone surgeries, there's, there's chunks of fat in your bones and sometimes those little pieces of fat can get dislodged and then they end up either blocking uh, pulmonary um, veins or get into your brain and block circulation in your brain and so you, you're, you uh, that's an emergency situation and you need to tell somebody about that. GI, uh, listening to the bowel sounds and listening for active bowel sounds just because you hear one in one minute that's not active. You're gonna have to hear several within uh, within a minute and generally you should not be giving anybody anything PO to drink until you hear those active bowel sounds. That's your cue that somebody's ready for it. Unless they've had some kind of GI surgery or something that means they aren't permitted to have anything, some esophageal surgeries, they may not be permitted to have anything. Those are special cases and you would be told, told that. But for, for most people, they can drink once they have um, some audible active bowel sounds. Uh, don't forget things like mouth care. People have had uh, intubation. They haven't had a lot to eat or drink in a long time. Uh, you know, giving, giving them some, at least something to rinse their mouth out with, with some, some mouthwash or, or even or brush their teeth if, they, if they're interested in that is a good idea. Um, Antiemetics, again, if they've been having any kind of vomiting. Uh, decompression, some of the, some of the um, surgeries involved, they'll, they'll fill the, the, G, the GI tract or the abdomen with gas, CO2, and that can cause a lot of pain. Uh, and so with the, with the uh, uh, laparoscopic surgeries, a lot of people are pumped full of, uh, of CO2. Has anybody ever had that done? Did you, did you have any pain afterwards? And what did they have you do to get rid of that? Pass gas, yeah. Give it, give it all, and uh, you'll feel you'll feel a whole lot better. And uh, sound effects are included for free here. And or walking around too. Just just getting up. One of the things that they recommend is just walking as much as you can because that helps dissipate the gas and helps it helps it escape. Uh, am, ambu ambulation getting up, walk, uh, walking around. And again, we're, we're, concerned about, we're concerned about nausea and vomiting. Uh, there's a, a rare cases, of, particularly with some GI surgeries, there can be an ileus. What's that? It's an ileus. It's like a blockage, but it's, it's actually where, where a section of, the, of your colon or GI tract intestine stops Per, uh, the, with the peristalsis. So the peristalsis will come down to a spot and then just stop. And then it might continue afterwards, but because it stops there, things can get backed up at that point. And so usually you don't realize that until people start getting constipated. Again, sometimes these things you're not going to see much in the immediate post-op period, but it's things to tell people about uh, if, in most cases where people are going home a couple days after surgery. Uh, in, in, Unless you have patients for many days postoperatively, we often don't see these things, so we have to teach them in our post-op teaching. Uh, I told you about the voiding. Uh, it's important that people, uh, people void. We're trying to see if they, they need to be putting out at least 30 milliliters every two hours to show that they've got some, some uh, kidney function. Most people are gonna pee a lot more than that because they're usually given higher 
fairly high amounts of IV fluids. And so you often see people, you know, filling up hats, filling up the, the urinals uh, once they do get to, to pee. We try not to catheterize people, even though their bladders are very full, even though they're hurting and they really want to pee, uh, we still try not to catheterize them if we can help it. Why is that? Just why? Right. Anytime you give somebody a catheter, a catheterization, you're opening up to a uh, urinary tract infection. Uh, no matter how good you are at it, you're, you're, it's, it's, an, it's another risk that they don't need. So we try not to do it. However, there are some cases where somebody just is not able to pee. They're starting to get, their bladder is getting so full, uh, it, gets, it can get dangerous. And they're in a lot of pain. And sometimes when they're in a lot of pain, that just keeps them from being able to void. The other thing is because of the odd positioning or lying flat on your back and because there's people around, that also keeps people from doing it. So sometimes there's just no choice but to catheterize. Usually you should consult with the physician about their procedures and, and whether they have a standard for when you can or is it done with a specific order. Uh, so sometimes people do retain urine postoperatively, and so, that, so we're keeping an eye out for that. And also because with some surgeries, people are catheterized in the OR, they can end up with a UTI a few days after the surgery too, so you want to keep an eye out for that. Uh, the wounds. Now, traditionally, surgeons will do the first dressing change uh, after, after a surgery. It's kind of a medical tradition that they want to come in and they want to see their handiwork. Um, and it also gives them a chance to talk with the, the patient about the, about the surgery. Uh, generally, if it's bleeding afterwards or if blood is starting to come through the wound, if it doesn't look too bad, you don't take the dressing off because that's just going to make it bleed more. What you just do is reinforce it, just like you remember from first aid class. You know, you just put, they just, they'll just put more on uh, until the dressing needs to be changed. Now, if there's evidence that there's extensive bleeding underneath or that the wound is uh, separating and there's, and there's more bleeding than there should be, the surgeon may say, let's take it off so we can see what's going on there because sometimes people have to go back to the OR and get closed up again because maybe they've popped a, a couple stitches somehow. Wound care, surgical wound care is aseptic. So again, you have to uh, make sure that nothing goes into that wound, no, no uh, gauzes or dressings or anything that's touching that wound uh, is, is anything but aseptic material. So you have to use, have to use aseptic technique for opening dressing, putting, putting the, the dressing onto the, onto the wound, all has to be done aseptically. You have uh, dehiscence, dehi you know what infections you know, but you know what de dehiscence is? Yeah, that's where the wound comes apart. Wounds are supposed to heal like this. They're kind of like a, a V, and they should close from the bottom up. And sometimes what happens is they'll, cl they'll close from the top, and then, and then, they, and then that, that's weak, and then it'll separate. So the, the way wounds, sometimes very, very deep wounds, you ever hear of packing a wound? Well, what they're doing is actually putting gauze into the wound, in, into the V there, and that actually prevents it from closing at, to, at the top too soon. So as, as the wound heals from the bottom up, you use less and less packing, and that helps the wound then close normally. So that's all that stuff is. It's just a barrier to keep the tissue from coming together. Um, but also because of uh, stitches that are used, and a lot of times now they use bio um, uh, dissolvable 
stitches that don't have to be taken out and they're put under the skin so you don't see anything on the surface of the skin except maybe tape that they use um, that holds the, the very, very top of the wound together. And then what's really holding the wound together is stitching that's in the skin and then that, those stitches dissolve. And so generally with, the, with the, uh, the tape, you don't have to do anything with it except just wait for it to fall off. And that can take a few days or a few weeks after surgery. What's evisceration? Evisceration is when organs come out, actually come through the wounds. That's where a wound is separated and now your guts are coming, coming out. So in some abdominal surgeries, uh, it, it can be very hard to hold everything in and hold everything together. And if somebody has moved too quickly or, the, or they weren't sewn together strongly enough, uh, that can separate and pieces of, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll might see little pieces of intestine or something come, come through. If that happens, what do you do? Stuff it back in. And before you even call the doctor? Yeah, I would get some sterile gauze, sterile saline, and just cover it and, and um, keep it wet. And so you're covering it, keeping more things from falling on it, and keeping it wet keeps, the, keeps the, um, uh, those guts from dry, drying out or getting exposed. And then, of course, that person's going to be immediately taken back to the, to the OR. Uh, neurologic assessment, uh, pain assessments. Again, it's a good idea preoperatively, I don't know if I mentioned this, but to, to give people the pain scales that you're going to be using so that they're familiar with it. It also lets you see if they have the cognitive skills to understand the pain scale. With a lot of kids, we were talking about in, in uh, last week in, in clinical that uh, a lot of kids, while they seem to understand pain scales, numeric pain scales, they're really better off with some kind of physical measure. And there's the poker chip where you have four poker chips or sometimes five poker chips, and you have the kids actually say how much pain they're in by, the, by how many chips they stack up. And uh, it seems to be a little more reliable, particularly for the, for the young school-age kids. Um, of course, assessing how, what their level of consciousness is as, they, as you recover from the anesthesia, you become more aware. However, a lot of people are in a lot of pain and are given frequent analgesics at high, fairly high doses, and so that makes them sleepy and not real talkative. Uh, and, but you still need to make sure and by talking to them uh, that they are at least waking, that they are talking and are aware of where they are and what's going on. Uh, a lot of places we will put up on the wall a clock so they know what time of the day it is. Um, putting, put up uh, calendars or a sign that says today is. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is um, day-night, making sure that it's clear between day and night. A lot of times there's a tendency to close all the drapes and close all the blinds, keep all the lights off, and then that, that can lead to a lot of disorientation because people are sleeping all day and then they wake up in the middle of the night and, they get, and they're confused. And uh, so sometimes it's better. Obviously, people are going to want to rest, but still let the room be brighter during the day and darker at night. It helps them with that orientation, at least what time of day it is. People can get psychosis, post-operative psychosis, because they lose track of where they are, what's going on. They don't know whether it's day or night. They're coming in and out of sleep if they're being heavily sedated. 
and uh, they, they, get, they can get a psychosis where they become very, very confused and sometimes get agitated. So, keep, so by keeping those, that orientation going, keeping that day-night cycle going, you can prevent a lot of that. Pain, you talk, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about it because you had a whole classes on pain. Have you already had those? Yeah, but again, it's just making sure that you're getting the right dose. And all the, all the analgesics have a milligram per kilogram recommended dosage. And it's really important that you check that to see what's my patient's weight and what's been ordered because it needs to be appropriate. Postoperatively is not the time to see how tough you are and how little medication that you need. So, um, you know, I, I believe in better living through chemistry and just give them, give them more, you know, give them the, the full dose that they're entitled to as often as they're entitled to it and then let them decide, okay, now I can go a little longer without the, about the medication. That's one of the nice things about PCA. And also don't forget the non-pharmacologic methods. Uh, one of the things I always talk about, I've talked about with my students is uh, always talk up the analgesic as this is a pain medication and this, should, this will help you feel better. Uh, don't just mix it in with the other meds, the antibiotic or whatever, and not mention that they're getting the analgesic there. And when you give the analgesic, is, talk about it in, a very, in very positive terms about how this is going to help them feel better very quickly. And uh, studies show that that is, is effective, helps with it. Plus, the other things you know about, like gui the guided imagery and those kind of things, are also effective. And what we one of the things we noticed is very few nurses seem to engage in those things. Um, seeing how well people are coping after surgeries, any kind of surgery that's very disfiguring or if somebody's been in a, in a, in a very severe accident or um, this is something that's facing with a lot of, a lot of the veterans coming, coming back with, with very severe uh, injuries, it's not just a physical recovery. There's a psychological recovery because you're now, you are, you're, your body has changed. And, and while you may be the same person on the outside, your body is now, now very, very different. Um, a friend of mine who was, uh, it was a, a private pilot and was in a very severe accident and burned 80% uh, of his body and was in burn center and uh, you know his, his body looks different now. He's, he's got very extensive scarring over, over half of his face and most all of his, all of his body and he had, had to kind of get used to this idea that this is, well this is, I'm still me but I'm going to be different and people are going to treat me uh, differently now. And the way he got through it was he had very supportive family. His wife and his mother uh, stayed close by him through, through the months of that, that recovery. Uh, if, you know, we, we try, the goal is to try to, to move people to a preoperative state of, of functioning, that's not always possible. And sometimes people have to learn what's called your new normal. What's my new normal going to be? And it might be doing things differently than you, than you did before. Uh, and so a lot of post-op of time can be spent, a lot of time can be, can be spent in re rehab. And people's emotional readiness for that really affects how well they're going to do uh, in, in that. And also, if they can see that other people are going through what they're, they're going through or see, or they can see how other people have coped with it, that also show, is, is shown to be very effective for helping people through that recovery period. Uh, this is a little chart, and I've, I've put this as a separate handout uh, that's in, available in Blackboard for you in a bigger form. And you can just kind of keep this. If you have anybody, if you're taking care of any post-op patients, 
Uh, you might want to just stick this into your notebook just to remind you of all the things that you should be assessing and looking at post-operatively. Post all right, what we're going to do now is uh, divide into little groups. I have some questions for you to answer and then I want to see what you, what you come up with. So you can get into groups of five or, five or six. Can you pass these out for me?